Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Second Timothy chapter 4. So y'all please rise for the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, Paul is. And the time of departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And the future is laid up for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing.
Last week, Micah chose for a scripture reading a passage that perfectly blended in with what I was saying last week, so much so that I ended up quoting the same passage. This week, Christian just did the same thing. And I did not call Christian and say, look, I got an idea. You, if you read out of Timothy, we're going to be fine. It's, we're going to coordinate. We're going to sync right up. No, I didn't do that. Instead, I would argue that the Holy Spirit laid that on Christian's mind on purpose because this morning, much to Micah's glee, we are actually going to get to the subject of our eschatological hope. Do you know the word eschatology? The Greek word eschaton just means last things. Ology, logos, words about. So these are words about last things. For weeks and weeks now, we've been talking about be the Christian, what it is to actually be Christian. And then we started talking about the benefits of Christianity. Most of those benefits so far have dealt with the here and now of Christianity, living out your life now. But there is also a key element of Christianity that we can't pass over under this heading of the benefits of Christianity. And that is that we have hope for the future. Part of why we have this hope that people are curious about, part of the reason that we have this peace that passes understanding, part of the reason that people will inquire about this hope that is within us is because we understand the Christian eschatology. In other words, we know who we are, we know where we've been, we know what we've done, but we know where we're going. We also know the very positive upside of Christianity. But in order to really understand the very, very good news of our Christian hope, we have to understand the contrasting situation. Last week, we talked extensively about loving each other because we did not love God first. He loved us first. John told us that God is love, therefore all sacrificial love emanates from God. He is the first cause of such love, and therefore we then are sacrificially loving toward each other. But as a consequence, I think people get the notion that God is love and all love and only love, that he is universally beneficent and that he is kind to everybody and wants everybody to be saved. Instead, what we're going to look at this morning to begin talking about our eschatological hope is we're going to talk about that character of God that he is perfectly willing to display, which is God is a judge and he has wrath, actual wrath, genuine wrath, eschatological wrath. Wrath that he says is coming, that is unlike anything the world has seen, a wrath that is still out in the future somewhere. And what is the benefit of being Christian? Well, we'll get to that once we understand what the wrath is about. So benefit number 11 is you're going to be part of the world to come. You're going to be a resident of the new Jerusalem. You are going to rule and reign with Christ for all eternity 
and you are going to escape all the things we're about to talk about. So start at the book of Revelation. That seems like a good place to start. The book of Revelation, chapter 3, I'm going to start reading at verse 19. Technically, John is writing to the church at Laodicea at this moment. This is the passage that includes the phrase, I stand at the door and knock. There have been so many interpretations and misunderstandings of that. But that's not what we're going to concentrate on this morning. Instead, what Jesus says is, to those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline and therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Do you understand the promise Jesus just made you? He just made the promise that if you overcome, overcome all the temptations of this world that are going to try to draw you away from the centrality of Christ in your life, when you overcome all that, he is going to grant you to be with him as he's on his throne in the exact same way that he is with the Father while the Father is on his throne. That's just kind of unbelievable that he would say the same way that I am with God, which, by the way, he deserves. He utterly deserves to be sitting at the right hand of God. He demonstrated that and proved that by his obedience to the Father and obedience even unto death. Therefore, he is raised up and has a name above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. He deserves that place of prominence. And he says to you that you're going to join him there. I mean, that's a big benefit. That's an enormous benefit of Christianity. But not everybody's going to get that. Not everybody's going to hear that. Not everybody is going to grasp that or understand it, which is why in verse 22 he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what we have is this eschatological hope. And that is the way that I want to frame the next couple of weeks of things that we're going to be talking about because there are so many things wrapped up, so many details wrapped up in this concept of our eschatological hope that culminates in Christ himself saying, I will grant you to sit down with me on my throne as I overcame and I sat down with my father on his throne. And if you have an ear, you can hear it. That is our big framework for the next couple of weeks. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned that God also is not love, only love, altogether love. He is also a judge who is willing to pour out his wrath. This past Wednesday, as we were talking about how God judges people for doing things that he sovereignly caused them to do, we looked at the fact that in Romans 9, Paul says these words. This is Romans 9, starting at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he find fault for who resists his will? 
Paul's answer is, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Pay attention to verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. Paul just described a characteristic of God that oftentimes churches sort of pass over, which is that God is perfectly willing to show his wrath. That is a part of his nature and character as much as his love is, as much as his grace is, as much as his mercy is, he's also perfectly willing to be a judge and to demonstrate wrath. Now, you may have some point in your life ever gotten really worked up, really gotten angry, really gotten mad at somebody and really unloaded on somebody, but you don't know what wrath is until you're talking about a God who can burn the whole planet. And he said he's going to. This is the same God who flooded the whole planet and killed everybody but eight people. That's the kind of judgment he's perfectly willing to pour out. And Peter says that the day is coming when his wrath is going to exude to the point where all these elements are going to burn with fervent heat. The earth is going to be renewed by him after he destroys everything that is enemy to him, that is contrary to him. All of the sinful elements of this planet are burned away. He's perfectly willing to let his wrath be known. Romans 2 says, starting at verse 5, Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, people who continue to rebel against God, people who continue to stand as enemy of God are doing nothing more because of their stubbornness and unrepentant hearts. They are doing nothing more than storing up, putting away, laying up in reserve the very wrath of God, except that in this passage, Paul also tells us that there is a day of wrath. The day, the particular day when God is going to pour out his wrath. Old Testament prophets referred to that as the day of the Lord. Sometimes as the day of the Lord's wrath. All of those phrases all mean the same thing. God is perfectly willing to demonstrate the extent of his anger and his wrath against sin, against his enemies, against the rebels. So you, in your stubbornness and unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each person according to his deeds? To those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for the glory and the honor and immortality, well, then they're going to have eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, you have nothing to look forward to but wrath and indignation. 
Boy, those are sobering words, huh? The anger of God and the indignation of God just put you completely out of his presence, into outer darkness, into the Gehenna, into the place of the fire never quenched and the worm is never sleeping. Just put you completely out of his way because he is indignant with you, ultimately ending up in a, a place called the lake of fire. We only know that language, and that thing only exists because the all-omnipotent, sovereign God decided to create a place called the lake of fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And we read in the book of Revelation, some people go there. Getting a sense of what I'm talking about? The wrath of God, and never forget that he is perfectly willing to pour out that wrath. This is something he's talked about in the Old Testament back in Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2, starting to read from verse 1, the oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkashite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. See, God is not just love, but here we have a definition of God. He is a jealous, avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves, he lays up wrath for his enemies. A moment ago we read that people are storing up, laying up wrath for themselves, wrath from God against them. And here we read that God is laying up wrath, storing up wrath that he is preparing to pour out on his enemies. You don't want to be on that side of the equation. I'm trying to give you some sense of what the future eschatology looks like. Zephaniah chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 14. Here is Zephaniah now referring to this time of wrath as the day of the Lord. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring, God speaking, I will bring distress on men so that they walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying end, of all the inhabitants of the earth. God's willing to do that. We just read he's perfectly willing to demonstrate his wrath. Everything that we read right there, we have not seen yet in human history. That kind of complete end of all the inhabitants of the earth. And yet that's what the Bible tells us is coming as God pours out his judgment. So here in Zephaniah, we saw the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath combined. 
And so whenever you read the day of the Lord, whenever you hear the language of the day of the Lord, you know that that is the day of God's judgment. How's everybody feeling so far? Pretty happy you were here? This is a feel-good Sunday morning so far, huh? Just wait. My story gets better. Hang with me. Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. The day is coming when I will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. Not a root or a branch will be left of them. This language of just wiping out his enemies, I'm trying to show you, occurs often in the Bible. And I'm just touching highlights this morning. This is thematic to the Bible. The idea that God is ultimately going to judge and judge in tremendous anger and tremendous wrath. John 3, 36, Jesus picks up the same theme. Jesus was willing to say it. He says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him, stays on him, has always been on him, will continue to be on him. It'll be no surprise when he falls under the wrath of God, because the wrath of God has been stored up in his life, and the wrath of God is staying with him, abiding with him. And that takes us back to Revelation 6. Starting at verse 12, I looked when the angel broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when it is shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. And then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders of the rich and the commanders of the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It's not just the wrath of God. It is the wrath of Christ when he returns. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. Okay, now all I've tried to demonstrate this morning, so far, is that both Old Testament and New Testament, there is this promise that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on the enemies of the earth, the people who are rebellious and have turned away from God. They are eventually going to be judged and judged harshly. And God is perfectly willing. It is part of God's character, nature, and makeup in his holiness. He is willing to pour out that kind of wrath and then you get to Revelation, and it says, predictively, the day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That was all introduction, because I wanted you to get a good feel for the fact that the Bible says the wrath of God is coming. But you were waiting for the but, weren't you? You were waiting for the however 
despite all that, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians is a passage that we're going to look at a couple of times, first and second Thessalonians, in the weeks to come. At the moment, we're not going to concentrate on the details of the first part of the chapter, but we will get to them. Now, about the times and the seasons, brethren, the chronos, the kairos, the passing of time, you know, a watch is called a chronograph. That word just moved into the English language from the Greek language. This is the word chronos, the passing of time and the events that happen in time. Those are the chronos and the kairos. It's translated in English as times and seasons, but it's more accurately the passing of time and the particular events that occur in time. Now, as for the times and the seasons, brethren, we have no need to write to you. For you are fully aware that the day of the Lord, everybody know what that is now? Everybody understand what the day of the Lord is? The time of wrath, the time of judgment, God pouring out his indignation. That day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's kind of scary. There was a movie a while back called A Thief in the Night that said that the rapture of the church was going to happen like a thief in the night. That's not what Paul wrote. What he wrote was the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment, the utter destruction of everything is going to come like a thief in the night. Even Jesus said that, that when there was this time of judgment, this tribulation that was going to come on the whole world, he said it's going to be like the days of Noah when they were buying and selling and marrying and given in marriage and they didn't know that the wrath of God was just about to fall until... The first raindrop hit, and then it swept them all away. And they didn't see it coming. They had 120 years of watching Noah building a boat in the middle of the desert, testifying, physically testifying with a boat. Trouble's coming. And yet they didn't know. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it till the day that God closed the door, and then they were swept away. Jesus says that's what the day of the Lord's going to be like. People are going to be buying and selling. People are going to be marrying, given in marriage, looking forward to the future, looking forward to what's coming. And then sudden destruction is going to fall on them. While they're busy saying, peace, peace, there's going to be sudden destruction. Well, that's why Paul says, you already know that the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief in the night. In other words, if you knew what time the thief was going to come, again, Jesus speaking, he said, if you knew what time, what hour of the day the thief was coming, you wouldn't go to sleep. You'd stay awake. You'd be waiting for him. But the thief in the night comes when you're asleep, when you're vulnerable, when you're not looking for it, when you're not expecting it. Then comes sudden destruction. Verse 3, while people are saying, peace and security, Sudden destruction will come on them, suddenly, like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Okay, so we have a few women in the room who have been pregnant. When the labor pains started, were you expecting it? I mean, you knew it was coming. You knew at some point there were going to be labor pains. 
but they always seem to happen at the most inconvenient time. Right about the time that you think it's just another day, suddenly, boom, labor pains. Okay, Paul says that's what it's going to be like. People are going to be going through their life. They know it's coming, just like the pregnancy knows the labor pains are coming. They know from the word of God that the day of destruction is coming, but they're not worried about it. They're not thinking about it. They're getting on with life. They're doing their thing. And then sudden destruction falls on them and they will not escape. That sounds very much like people on the earth running for the caves and the mountains and the dens of the earth and saying to the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. There's no hiding. There's no escaping. Sudden destruction when he's going to make a complete end of the planet. But you, brothers, you ready to get happy? Yes. I mean... You ready to get all Pentecostally on me? I mean, because after everything you've read this morning, how good are these words? But you, brethren, are not in the darkness so that that day would overtake you like a thief. Really? Really, it's going to overtake the whole world. They're not going to see it coming. Sudden destruction but not you. Okay, we're talking about the benefits of Christianity, right? That's an enormous benefit that the God who's perfectly willing to pour out massive amounts of wrath excluded you. He's not going to pour out his wrath on you because you're not in the darkness so that this day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. And we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us remain awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of our hope of salvation." Verse 9, memorize verse 9, tattoo verse 9 to your forehead so that every time you look in the mirror, you have to read that. Tattoo it backwards so that every time you look in a mirror, you have to read this. For God has not appointed us to wrath. How good is that? The God who's perfectly willing to pour out wrath. The God who's perfectly willing to judge people severely has also said, if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, you are not appointed to wrath. He has already determined your destiny. He has already determined that you are not going to fall under the wrath that is going to fall out on the whole world. Can we talk benefits of Christianity for just a minute? Amen. Christianity is not just about silly things like I'm going to get a new car and a bigger house and my, my children are going to be better looking and run faster and jump higher. It's about the fact that God is perfectly willing to judge the whole world in anger and wrath and not you and not those that are in Christ. The big theological concept is Christ was on the cross 
bearing the wrath of God for all those that he died as substitute for. Therefore, having borne the wrath of God once, God is not going to pour out his wrath on the body of Christ a second time. That's even taught in the Old Testament when Moses is told as they were looking for water, when they were out in the desert wandering for 40 years and ran out of water, he was told, go strike the rock. Water will come from the rock. So he did. He went and he struck the rock. And water poured out of the rock, enough water for the millions of people that were traveling. Well, later, sure enough, they end up in another place where there's no water. They start complaining to Moses. So now they're being faithless. Now they're arguing with God and arguing with Moses. Moses goes back to the rock and he says, Hear ye rebels! And he strikes the rock a second time. And for that, he didn't get to see the promised land. Why? Because he messed up the typology. The typology is you strike the rock once, and then living water comes from the rock. But he can only be struck once. Moses messed it up and struck him a second time. So that teaching of the wrath of God, the striking of God to Christ once for all is a finished work. It can't be done again. And we then collectively as the church are referred to as the very body of Christ. He's not going to strike the body of Christ a second time. So we are not as a consequence since we are in Christ and he is in us and our sin debt has been paid. We are not, I love the word, appointed to wrath. We are not determined to wrath. And by the way, that is God's determination that he determined before the foundation of the world. The same way that he knew you, the same way that he chose you, the same way that he wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life before forever. At that point, he already determined that you were not appointed to wrath. So this is the everlasting plan of God who decided that from the beginning. What are the chances he's going to mess it up? What are the chances he's going to forget about it? What are the chances that any one member of his body is going to end up under his wrath? This is good news. This is good, good news. And again, it's been taught. It's been shown typologically in the Old Testament. It's been demonstrated in the finished work of Christ. The very fact that he rose to sit at the right hand of his father and then said to us, you're going to come and sit with me on my throne. The same way I sit on the Father's throne. That's what you're destined to. That's what he has predetermined for you. You are not appointed to wrath. Look at the second half of verse 9. But to obtain salvation. The word but right there in the middle of it means this is a contrast. You weren't appointed to this, but you were appointed to this. You were not appointed to suffer wrath, but you were appointed to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a sovereign verse. You were appointed to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you believe in Christ today. Because you were appointed to that. And the same way that he is storing up wrath against those who were Vessels of wrath, designed for wrath, determined for wrath. Here, let's take a look at it. Let's contrast it. Here we are back in Romans 9. 
Starting again in verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath who were prepared for destruction? Okay, so contrast that for a moment. There are human beings on the planet, as harsh as this sounds, but as sovereign as this is, there are people on the planet who were prepared for destruction. And God is perfectly willing to pour out his wrath on those people. He endured them with much patience, even though they were prepared for destruction. He endured them so that he could make the riches of his glory be known upon the vessels of mercy. Those that he did not appoint to wrath. Even us, whom he called. The reason we believe, the reason we are vessels of mercy is because he called us, he ordained that we would be in Christ, and therefore he could ordain that we would not be appointed to wrath. Do you see the contrast? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction versus those who were not appointed to wrath. That's two categories. The appointed to wrath group and the not appointed to wrath group. And I like being in the Second group, I want to be in that group. I want to be in that happy, praising God, heavenly, eternal group. That, that's what you get as a benefit of Christ. That is a huge benefit. That is an eternal benefit. That is an eschatological benefit. And because we are not glorified yet, it is our hope. It is what we are looking forward to. It is what we are anticipating. It is why we endure. It's why we keep going. It's why we persevere in the faith. It's why nobody can talk us out of it because we know what the end is going to be. I know who I am. I know what I was like. I know where I've been. And I know where I'm going. Pretty good, huh? So good, in fact, that Paul says, I am now back in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 10. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that means dead or alive, that we may live together with him. The same way he got up, we're going to get up again. And then Paul says, therefore... Encourage and build up one another just as you're already doing. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to encourage you and build you up. You need to know how bad the bad news is. You need to know how willing God is to pour out wrath in order to understand how really, really, really good it is that he did not appoint you to that wrath, but instead has appointed you to salvation through Christ Jesus, who died for us so that whether we're dead or whether we're still alive, we're going to live together with him forever. And that is a great encouragement. And Paul instructs us to build one another up with that news. Good news. Oh, not just good news, but there's no Greek word that I can think of for it's 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 megas news. It's it's great news. It's far more than just merely good news. Okay. So let's start talking about our eschatological hope. I know I've already said it once, but technically, again, all introduction. 
all of this morning will probably just be introduction. Let's start out by reading out of the book of Acts, chapter 1. I think I just scared Taylor because we're a half hour into this. And I said, let's start out by reading Acts chapter 1. If I didn't already scare you with the wrath of God stuff. (laughs) (laughs) We are starting in Acts chapter 1. We're going to establish the first element of our eschatological hope. And that first element I want to establish is Jesus is coming back. That's part of what we're looking forward to. Jesus left the planet and he's coming back. We're going to start reading at verse 1 of chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up and he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God and gathering them together He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for that which the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up While they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? Seems like an obvious answer. Well, because he just sailed right off the planet. That's why. And when he went up into the blue, clouds gathered to lift him. And he, and he kept going. But look at what the angel says. This same Jesus, who you have seen taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. So a couple thousand years ago, He was lifted up off the planet. He couldn't die again. He had already died once, had resurrected. And then he ascended to sit on the right hand of God. And the promise from the angel of God at the very moment that Jesus went from the planet, immediately the promise was he'll be back. He's coming again. 
and you're going to see him come again exactly the way you saw him leave which is why when you get to the book of revelation and you start reading about his return he returns in clouds of glory why clouds why is he riding a cloudy chariot why is he coming back with clouds because he left in the clouds he was encompassed and lifted by clouds and he's coming back on clouds the same way he left he's coming back that is the basis for all Christian hope for the future all of our Christian future hope is built on the reality that Christ is coming back now there are a whole lot of elements and particular details that we're going to look at in the coming weeks that surround the return of Jesus the fact that he's coming back but first we just have to establish that he is coming back the very one who actually rose from the dead rose from the planet I like to say that he didn't just get up he got all the way up he got as up as up gets you don't get more upper than he got he got up out of the grave he got up onto the planet he got up into the sky kept being lifted up to the very throne room of God and then was seated at the right hand of God you don't get more up than that but then at the very moment that he was in that upness angels from God promise he'll be back and that is why we have confidence and hope even as the world is going increasingly stupid even as that is happening we know confidently that even though there's warfare on the planet even though there's brother against brother ethnos against ethnos even though we're seeing people hate each other we know the Prince of Peace is coming back even though the world seems to be in turmoil we know the one who is going to take up the throne of his government the one who is going to rule with a rod of iron and a two-edged sword out of his mouth the one who is going to not only exhibit his wrath but exhibit astounding grace and establish the kingdom that's been promised to him ever since the Davidic covenant we know that's all coming we are living right now in the period of time between he went away and the promise he's coming back and we're sitting right in the middle of that reading about the things he did and looking forward to the things he's going to do because the same word of God that has already demonstrated prophetically the absolute accuracy of God's word the things that we can look back on in history and say wow the Bible predicted that and it actually happened that batting average that God's got going of absolute perfection so far gives us all the hope and confidence that everything else he said he's going to do is actually going to come true he's actually going to do it all and he's already proven to us that he's going to do it all that ought to build up your faith that ought to build up your confidence as you look forward to the future knowing that not only is there nothing men can do to you the worst they can do to you is kill you and then you go home there's nothing that this planet can ultimately do to you to separate you from the Savior who bought you at the price of his own blood 
But even this planet, even this world is going to be remade until you get to Revelation 21, 22. You read about a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And you're going to be a resident of the new Jerusalem. But we'll get there as we go through the details. But I just want you to understand that the good news does not stop at, well, he's going to take care of you during this lifetime. The good news extends to, he's going to take care of you forever. He has pre-planned how he's going to care for you. And it's not just good, it's good, good, good. It's gooderer, it's more good, it's lots of many good that he has already planned this for you. 2 Timothy 4, starting at verse 6, this is what Christian read for us this morning. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, Paul writes. And the time of my departure has come. He recognizes he's about to be martyred. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me, look what he did, eschatological hope. In the future, there's light up for He's looking at being martyred. He's looking at having his head cut off. He's going to be killed. And what does he do? He turns to the blessed hope of the future. And he says, in the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're anticipating, the return of Christ. By the way, notice the contrast. Out of the book of Revelation, we read people running for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth and saying, hide me, he's back. Or there's that group that love his appearing. They can't wait for him to come back. By the way, that Greek word is epiphania, or epiphania. Which way would you say it, Steve? Epiphania? Epiphania. Oh, okay. That's just the way you would say it. Oh, okay. Well, it's the last time I ask you. Um, <laughs> it's the word from which we get epiphany. Have you ever had something just suddenly occur to you? You go, oh, I've had an epiphany. That's the word, the Greek word from which we get this notion of Christ appearing. It's an epiphany. It happens. It hadn't happened before. It's never happened in human history. The return of Jesus Christ. Not coming as a baby in a manger, but coming on clouds of glory with a two-edged sword out of his mouth. I mean, returning to gather his church Returning to take his loved ones home with him, to take his bride home to his father's house. He said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may also be. He's coming back to get us, to take us to that place. We love that. We love that appearing. And there's going to be an award, a crown of righteousness given to all those who endure through this lifetime. And that crown is not only for Paul, but for all those who love his appearing. Okay, now could Paul write all those who love his appearing if he didn't think he was coming back? This again, 
is thematic to what Christianity is. The anticipation that he's coming back. Hebrews 9, starting at verse 27, says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Now you remember a minute ago, see if I can make this connection, Luke told Theophilus that Christ, after he resurrected, appeared to those disciples he had chosen. He didn't appear to everybody. He appeared to those he had chosen and gave undeniable proofs that he was alive. Same thing here, that Christ is coming back the second time for those who eagerly await him. Those people who love his appearing. Those are the people that he is returning for, that he is establishing his epiphany for. Christ also, having been offered once, he only had to do it once. The sin offering is paid. He died once because human beings only die once. He died once and he got up again. Therefore, he cannot die anymore. So he died to bear the sins of many and he will appear the second time for salvation without reference to sin. What an interesting phrase. Without reference to sin. Why could the writer of Hebrews say that he's returning again without reference to sin? It's because he took care of the sin thing the first time. The first time he was here, he died for the sins of his people. So he's not coming back to die for the sins of his people. He's coming back to get his people. He's coming back to gather his people. He's coming back to collect his bride and take her home with him. To those who eagerly await him. I hope you fall into that camp. The camp of those who eagerly wait for him. This becomes the very basis of our hope. This becomes the basis of the Christian future, why we look forward, why we anticipate the return of Christ, and we don't fear it. We're not going to run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth. We're not going to fear the return of Christ. We anticipate the return of Christ. Well, right there you see a a separation, a division. You see two camps. You see those who were made for destruction, and you see those who we're not appointed to wrath. You see those who are fearful of his return, who are going to run and say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, versus those who love his appearing and anticipate his return. Paul wrote to Titus. In Titus 2, I'm going to start reading from verse 11, and it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. I hope you know that means all kinds of men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good deeds. 
That's our blessed hope. Our blessed hope is the looking forward to the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, that epiphany moment. That moment when you're going to hear the trumpet call. That moment when you're going to see the Lord on clouds of glory. That moment when you're going to be caught up to be with him forever. That's our blessed hope. That's the hope that is within us. That's the consciousness that we have that this world can't do anything to erase. The reality is, regardless of what they think and how much they might hate it or how they try to destroy it, the simple reality is we Christians have that hope. And you can't get rid of that hope. You can can make us sick. You can put us in jail, you can make it difficult for us to meet together, you can persecute us, you can do all that. What you can't take from us is that hope, that blessed hope. That's why Paul would refer to it as a blessed hope. It's a blessing to have that hope. Not everybody has that hope. Talk to some of your atheistic friends. All they've got is a terror of what's coming ahead. And I don't mean an eschatological terror. I mean they look at the world and they have that worldly worldview. And they think, man, if Darwin was right, we're just going to devour each other. And yet, Christians have this constancy to their hope, to their anticipation of not only the return of Christ, but our gathering to him. And really, our gathering to him is what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks. All I wanted to do this morning was establish a couple things. Grace brings salvation to all kinds of men. Not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. As a result of that, we're the ones who deny ungodliness and worldly desires. We live righteously in this present age, says Paul, And we look forward to the blessed hope of final salvation that's going to happen when our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, redeems us utterly and completely from all our sins and purifies us for himself. We, in response to his saving work, we then become zealous to do good works. The good works we do while we're here occupying, waiting for him to return, are a result of the fact that we have the blessed hope. That we know what the future is that he has designed for us, that he has obtained for us, that he has purchased for us. And in response to that, we then live righteously in this world and do the good works. Next week, we're going to start at of necessity. There is a resurrection to come, but Paul's also going to say that it's a great mystery. Part of the mystery is not everyone's going to die. You want to talk about good news for a minute? If you happen to be among those people that don't die, You're going to say, well, I'm sure happy with this Christian thing so far. This is paying off for me. If you step from life into life, how good is that? But before we can get there, we have to demonstrate and establish that there of necessity has to be a resurrection first because this corruptible cannot inherit incorruptibility without something happening first. I think this would be a good time to sing, It is well with my soul. Steve, if you would.
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.